That's what you say, standing out of reverence for God's word. We're going to be reading uh, in Exodus 33 today. I will read uh, the beginning of this. We'll talk about the rest of the the chapter uh, in the sermon, but I'll begin here. This is uh, Exodus 33, verses 1 through 6. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up amongst you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no, uh, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, so that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. And out of the thankfulness we have for God's word, I say this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So on that note, we are going to be reading out of Exodus 33. Our topic is enjoying God's presence. I love this. as uh, This text does a fantastic job of explaining this to us. But one of the things I, if you know me for very long, I really like uh, the tension of things. I like when things don't seem to fit so well and figuring out uh, what they speak to us. I, I really like uh, poetry. I like the Psalms a lot. And I like the, 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 the in-between, the work we have to do um, to understand the true meaning of what's going on there. So uh, we're in a series now. We're kicking off a series this fall. It's going to be 10 weeks in uh, talking about this idea, the DNA of of Parkview, the traits. You can see that on the screen there. Uh, The idea behind this is that Parkview is a church of people who are pursuing Jesus in everyday life together. So this is something that we're doing. We're pursuing Jesus. We understand that as we pursue Jesus in everyday life, that it will shape us. It will form us. It will, be, it will, it will, will call us to do things and be things and think things and say things uh, as we rightly follow Jesus. As he creates disciples who gather, grow, and go, he shapes us a certain way. Now, uh, what, we could, what we're going to be doing here, uh, if you have... One of these beautiful little booklets here, or if you saw one of these, or if you will see one of these, I'd encourage you to grab one. It will have your guide. This is kind of the map for the series. It'll have your guide of going through uh, maybe a couple times every week, uh, how to understand and wrap your minds around what we're saying when we mean enjoy God's presence, what we're saying when we mean live God's story, what we're saying when we mean love God's people. So what we're going to be doing for 10 weeks is just talking about some of those things, some of those, some of those uh, delights or those motives or those, those, uh, those actions that we take that help us to understand we're in the ballpark of where we need to be as disciples. Now, the hope and the prayer for the pastoral staff here at, at Parkview is that we will all, as a people of God, be increasing in all of these things. So today, my message to you is not, you must enjoy God's presence, but I'm going to encourage you to be on a path of increasing, increasingly enjoying God's presence. Now, as someone who, uh, who, um, who uh, grew up kind of in post-modernity, I always am critical and I always am questioning. And so the question that I have for us is I say, 
enjoy God's presence is why. Why should I even enjoy God's presence? Because I just read Exodus 33, and it does not sound delightful. It does not sound like something to enjoy. And so what are we doing here? Now, the pastors at Parkview are not idiots. We did not say one thing and then give a text to say the opposite. There is incredible delight in here. I want to look into this difficult passage. I want to look into the story of Exodus. I want to look into all of, of, the, of the story of, of redemptive history to see that God's presence is something that's absolutely wonderful, is, absolutely, is something that's absolutely necessary. And, and we see a very pointed glimpse of this idea of presence being withdrawn. And we learn a lot from it in the book of Exodus, especially here in chapter 33. So you can turn in your Bibles there. If you're not there yet, uh, I would encourage you to get there. We're going to be looking a lot at Exodus 33, 1 through 7. We'll be jumping around a little bit uh, as well. All right, uh, there's, there's this idea here. Uh, before we jump in, there's an idea that I want to address. It's this idea of loneliness. Uh, there's a, um, a scholar, uh, a sociologist, Robert Putnam. He wrote a book, uh, I, I don't know, probably 15, 20 years ago, um, called Bowling Alone. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thick book. It's a good book. It's, it's, it's meaty and has, has a very pointed argument. He says that there is a breakdown in social capital uh, now that we experience. This idea of social capital, what is that? Capital is that the goods exchanged between people. Uh, he says there's this social capital, which is actually our relationship that we exchange with others. When you're sitting here in the pews, we've exchanged some of that social capital in that we greeted each other. There's a relationship. There's an exchange of our relationship there. It's very minimal. Uh, you know, now when you and somebody else go slug it out at, you know, the bags tournament or the inflatables, that'll be a, a higher level, more commodities will be in it. You know, you'll be, you'll be developing relationship. That's kind of the ethos behind all of our potlucks to increase this idea of social capital. But he says there's this breakdown that's happened in the United States of social capital. We've, we've lost this. We've taken things that used to be good and encouraged us to rub shoulders with people and not simply rub shoulders with people, uh, to, to, to dig into relationship with people. Uh, we used to sit and take long vacations uh, at people's houses. Maybe some of you still do this, but oftentimes we just have like a quick overnight and we check in with people. You stay for long times. You travel long distances and you get into big conversations with people. We'd sit around a lot and, and talk in the evenings on the front porch, which we now rarely have front porches, uh, which is, is so sad. Um, we had parks, we had places, uh, spaces where we could interact with each other, but now we've kind of lifted all those things. Before this breakdown happened, you have a mall called Coral Ridge Mall, where people get together, and uh, he doesn't write about this, I'm switching now. Uh, you have this Coral Ridge Mall where people go and they want to buy things, right? But it's designed so that we exchange this commodity of relationship with each other, whether we're trying to look conveniently away because we don't want to make eye contact, which is always what happens, right? It gives us, encourages us to be together and rub shoulders with each other. Now, suburbia was invented after this breakdown. North Liberty does this a little differently. When we want to buy something, a breakdown of social capital means that we have strip malls. We don't rub shoulders with each other. We park in front of where we need it. We walk in, we get it, and we come back out. I'm illustrating a point here. We used to sit around and talk with each other about ideas and exchange of ideas. Uh, but now we do this exchange of ideas on the internet, right? We do this, we do this on social media a lot. Our, our conversations have gone short, or if they go long, they're usually rants, and they're not so helpful. Uh, but, but we think that there's uh, uh, the power technology has helped us develop more of this social capital, this exchange. But really what happens is you and I all sit at home talking to each other, just staring at a screen. There's no interaction with human beings. It's a real breakdown of social capital. 
Why am I talking about that? Because it's something that we've created. It's an institution we've created. It's a, it's a structure. It's something that we've done, maybe unintentionally, that now is shaping us and feeding into something. And it creates us to be more independent. It creates us to be more isolated. And it feeds into... Someone just texted me. Someone just texted me, and I want to read it because I want to interact with you. Uh, no, the... Uh, I'm going to interact with you face-to-face, guys. Uh, but there, there's something that happens that these, these, these institutions create, these, these things that we're doing, they, they, they create, they feed into this idea of loneliness. That even though we feel like I was on Facebook and caught up with a bunch of people, I still haven't satisfied that need for community. So I'll probably go back and scroll through some more or like things because then people know I'm, we're talking and, and something strange happens there. There's this loneliness that's there. Now, how does this get us? How, how does Exodus 33 speak to that? And how does God's presence? It's because the people in, in Exodus, the Israelites that are there, uh, that God himself knows that this is one of the biggest parts of the human condition. This is one of the biggest uh, uh, things that hurt us, that we worry about. Last week, we talked about this idea of being busy because we think that busy people are important people. We think that, we think that uh, people that have so many uh, uh, things to do are people that aren't lonely. But oftentimes, we busy our schedules because our hearts are busy, because we're trying to find the ultimate purpose. We're trying to find identity in something. We're trying to find uh, a purpose for something. The people of Israel are thinking this. They're trying to figure out, who are we? We just came from slavery. We just walked through a wilderness. We, we were about to be a people with a name. And now our God is withdrawing his presence from us. Maybe you're someone who, who, who is a busy person, who is someone that a lot of people know. And in your own quiet solitude, you, you can't hide the fact that you, you keep going for that and doing that because you ultimately feel a bit lonely. It's not satisfying. Maybe you're, maybe, you're, maybe you're a boss. Maybe you're an employee. Maybe you pride yourself on your work. Maybe you are a parent. Maybe you are single. Maybe you are a, a, a spouse. And you pride yourself on how well you do those things. That's very similar to what's happening here with the people of Israel. So we're going to jump back into the Bible and see how similar we are to the Israelites here. I'm going to give you a, a setup here uh, because we get to a pointed text in, in Exodus 33. I'm going, to get, I'm going to give a setup of all that's happened up to this point in Exodus 33 to see what it means when the people of Israel say this very short sentence here. Or when they react this way and understand this, this, uh, this disastrous word of God. So the people of Israel, they end up in Egypt. This is at the end of the book of Genesis. They end up in Egypt because there's a famine. They want to be fed. This is where we get here. Uh, then we open up the book of Exodus. And, and we read that, uh, that there's a Pharaoh in place that doesn't actually know all of the promises God has made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A promise to grow his people, to give them a place uh, of, of richness, to, to, um, to protect them, to have his name on them. People will know that you are my people and that I am your God, that the, that the world will be blessed by him. Uh, this Pharaoh doesn't know this, so he subjects them to slavery. He, uh, he then, when he does, is made aware of this, he resists it and says, no, I'm going to be the king now. And he puts them in slavery and keeps them there. Harsh work is what they get. But then the people cry out to God, as maybe you or I do, and, 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 Christ, or, and, and, and God sends a Messiah figure, a savior. He sends, he sends Moses and he says, you will lead the people out of slavery. This is the story of us. This is, this is very much our story. Maybe you are someone who's caught in slavery to sin. Okay, that's ridiculous. You are caught in slavery to sin and you need out. It's just, we all have different sins that we're slaves to. 
And it says that there's this Christ figure that's going to come and he leads them out. We journey with the Israelites through the book of Exodus that he says, even when there is a foe that comes after you that says, no, 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 we're going to go back to the way it was. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to slide back into what was comfortable and what was sinful. We're going to go back to Egypt. He makes a miraculous way for, for us to go out of that. We enter this life, the wilderness. We wander. We understand who God is and we ask these questions. What is my purpose? Where are we going? And we aren't, we aren't like Moses in this story. We are the Israelites. We are the stiff-necked, rebellious Israelites who in this life of wilderness wondering ask the question, where are we going? What are we doing? Is God even real? Why doesn't he act more powerfully? And it's so funny because we, we, can, we can say that the Israelites are just simpler. They're, they're, they're people of history, and so they're obviously dumber and simpler than us, right? They don't have as much faith. Well, they have incredible faith. They're just like us. They're sinners, in need of a savior. So maybe uh, as, you, as you get here, I'm, try, I'm trying to, uh, to help you understand where these Israelites are at. Maybe you're like the Israelites today and that you've come up to that Red Sea-like place where you feel like in life you are, you are one of those people who says, either I'm going to go this way with this decision and I'll drown, surely, or I'm going to stay put and I'm going to have my enemy or whoever's coming after me spear me to death. I'm done. I have nowhere to go. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're like the Israelites who are wandering through the wilderness on the other side saying, praise be to God, he worked in miraculous ways. We will worship him forever. This will be great. Or maybe you're like the Israelites who like one week later say, where's God? Did he bring us out of here to die? Where am I? I don't know what I'm doing. I'm part of a church and I just don't feel it. I don't feel what other people feel. I can't possibly be a Christian. When is God going to do what he said he's going to do? Maybe you're like that. Or maybe you are like the Israelites here in in Exodus 33. In Exodus 32, we find that that Moses has gone up on on the mount to hear the word of God, to speak to God, to hear the new relationship that's there. He creates this new covenant. He creates these laws. And God, in his his all-knowing wisdom, says, Oh, yeah, and also, Moses, your people are down there making an idol. That's one of the commandments I just said, don't do. They're doing that now. So at the end of Exodus 32, we find that Moses comes down. And this is the language that God uses. He says, my people are going to go here. You're going to take my people out. He switches this language to say, these are not my people. They are not acting like they're my people. They are not my people. I cannot go with them. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go from here. I will give you all the promises that I promised your ancestors. I will send an angel. He will drive out all of your enemies. Go to a land flowing with milk of honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way. You are a stiff-necked people. That language, stiff-necked people, is so wonderful. It means the same thing then as it does now. now I'm going to act this out a bit to help us. This idea of, of stiff-necked people. God cannot dwell with stiff-necked people. He cannot dwell with sinners. And I'll give you the first point here, is that sin cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. Why do we enjoy God's presence? Because sin cannot dwell there. It has to be holy. This means something for us. Let's go here. Stiff-necked. These people are stiff-necked. Now, uh, if you've had kids or seen kids, this will like burn within you and you'll, you'll understand God's emotions there. If you've not, you could probably imagine what this is, but I'm going to act it out. It's going to be really great. I'm an uh, awful actor, so this is going to be neat. Um, so you have a kid, you know, uh, in my experience, okay, uh, you know, you have a kid and this kid has been told the rules, right? 
I mean, they've clearly told the rules, especially if you're the parent, you have just impeccable rules that are just wonderful. Um, and, uh, and so they've given this rule. Uh, one of our rules is don't put things in the toilet. Uh, it's, it's a good one. I feel like it's easy. I feel like I don't have to justify it too much. It makes sense. It's gross. So that's one of our rules. This is actually an issue at our house. Um, and, uh, uh, oh, goodness. Uh, uh, so, so we walk in, and, and, and you see these kids playing with the toilet uh, and throwing stuff in the toilet. And, and there's this moment where I say, we've, we've clarified this. We actually had this conversation. I say, you know, I'm going to use my name so my girls don't get in trouble. Josh, you know, so I'll say, you know, I'm, I'm the kid. Josh, what are you doing? Here's the moment right here. Stiff-necked people. You hear that judgment's coming, you know that you've been told this is wrong. You understand in your heart you're doing the wrong thing, but you kind of still want to do it. So what do you do? You stiffen your neck. You, you, you block it out. Mm. Nope. Nope. Just keep going. In the toilet. You know, here we go. Josh, get your hands out of the toilet. Stiff neck. There we go. And it just, I'm not listening. I didn't hear you because I can say, I just didn't hear, right? I could, I could pull that card. God, I didn't hear you. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to look at porn. I didn't know I was supposed to treat my wife this way. I didn't know I was supposed to be kind and gentle and truthful and just with my kids in ways that aren't angry and shame them. I didn't know that I was supposed to speak well of my neighbor all the time. I didn't know that. So I'm just going to keep throwing stuff in the toilet, right? I like this. I want to do this. Josh, stop it. You stick neff people stop making idols for yourselves. Oh, Israel, I can't do anything with you. And if I can't do anything with you, then how can I go with you? If you are not going to reflect my character and the holiness that I require of you, and you will refuse to be taught by this and humble yourselves there. How can I possibly go with you? Verse four, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. They did well. The Josh in my household, not me and my kids, keep on playing. The Josh in my heart, in my life with other things, keep on thinking that I am the exception. Yes, I should respect my authority, but this is a weird caveat exception for me. I should be faithful this way or that way with my words or actions to my wife or husband, but you don't know my wife or husband exception. I should be kind and loving and patient and quick to forgive, to forgive 77 times, seven times. This one can't be forgiven. Yeah, we make those exceptions. And when we do that, we craft idols of our own, right? Because we're the authority at that point. And he says, that's not my presence. You've already kicked me out. You've become unteachable. You've stiffened your neck to my will. Sin cannot dwell in the presence of God. The first thing this text does is the first thing you probably thought it does. It breaks us down. And it says, you can't do this. We've got a new way of doing things. We've got to talk about this a little differently. So there's joy, though, because, because this presence is here. And he says, you can't go with you if you're going to be this way. Now, there's a covenant that God's creating. I won't go into that entirely, but, but a covenant is, is the basic idea is that, is that the, the one making the covenant says, I have done these things for you. Here's what God did. I took you out of slavery in Egypt. This will be the most repeated covenant-building preamble that you will ever hear in the Bible. It's repeated so many times. I, the Lord your God, have taken you out of slavery in Egypt. I did this for you. So here are the stipulations. I'll keep up my end of the deal. You'll keep up your end of the deal. If you don't, curses. And it's okay because I justly and clearly and lovingly told you what was at stake here. But if you do keep up 
is stipulations. Then there are blessings and they will abound. And one of those is my presence. Because the people went against this, the curses are upon them. His presence is withdrawn and they're going to get his curses. Now, there's something else. I'll, put the, I'll change all of that idea. That's a big theological idea right there. I'm going to translate this into the, or into the New Testament. Instead of covenantal cursings, which is there, we can say something like, the wages of sin is death. And if you sin as stiff-necked people against God, which all of us do, we just talked about that in confession, you actually should get the full wages of sin. And, 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 and the wages of sin is death. I, w- I want to clarify that, that the Bible is not speaking to us. Christ is not speaking to us first and foremost in this life right here. There's, 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 there's a balance between the lives. It's not that you're going to die right now. You're not going to make it through the end of the week. There's this death, this eternal death. And sometimes we say, oh, that's just bad. What is that? The eternal death that we can experience if we do not ask for repentance of our sin is an eternal conscious separation from God. That, that's what the death means. For the wages of sin is death, an eternal conscious separation from God. We can never enjoy God's presence. This idea of presence is huge. It's one of the driving themes of all of the Bible. So he says, you must go away here in Exodus. And when, when, when we get to the New Testament, he says, you must go away if you will repent. But here's the beauty of it. The author of all creation, the one writing history, has said, I am the author I am holy, and sin cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God, but I'm going to enter that story. And now we get to this guy called Emmanuel, God with us. In the midst of our wayward, stiff-necked rebellious, or rebellion, God sends himself as Emmanuel, God with us. The second point is, sin cannot dwell in the presence of God. However, through Christ, we have access to God. In Matthew 20, we hear of the purpose of this Christ, this better Moses. And the purpose of this Christ, the Son of God, Jesus, is that even as this, it says, Matthew 20, uh, 28 says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We see that, that God's presence pushes him away, the covenant curses, the, the full wrath of God, the, the weight of, of death, and, and the punishment for sin is there. And Christ comes forward as God with us to give his life as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, you are part of the many that he gave his life as a ransom for. He paid for that. On the cross, he took the full weight of God's wrath, the full, the full punishment of covenant curses, the full death that was there. And he took that on himself. That's amazing because God is fully just and holy and merciful he does something with the wages of sins. He doesn't just forget them. Because a God who forgets them is a God who pursues like, a, like an insecure uh, uh, high school ex-boyfriend. <laughs> just coming after us. I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. Do whatever you want, right? He has to do something with the punishment if he's to be rightly just and holy. And he decides to enter the story through Jesus Christ and put all that on him and the cross. Through Christ, we have access to God. I've set that up and I feel like I did an okay job, but nothing will ever be better than Ephesians 2. Can we put that on the screen? Ephesians 2, uh, 12 through 14. This is one of the most remarkable uh, passages of Scripture. It speaks to the presence of God being made possible in our lives through Jesus and his death on the cross. G- uh, the Apostle Paul, as he's getting ramped up in his preaching here, he says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Oh, what a beautiful text. You, have, you at one time were separated. You were alienated. You were strangers. You were so far off. Maybe that's where you feel right now. You know, I, I love this, how he says it. He says, remember, this is how you once were. Maybe I've got to be sensitive. Maybe you're there. And even if you are a Christian, you might still be there thinking, how do I fit? What, what, what's the point? Maybe you've talked about Jesus so long that you think this is just something we talk about. And it's never actually been this idea that he died for your sin so that you could be near. Maybe that's never connected at that level that you've been a a, a Christian in expression, but never truly in your heart. Remember that one time you were separated. But now in, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near to him. We have access through him. See, this is, this is amazing because, because Moses, the foreshadowing of Jesus, in Exodus 33, does this similar kind of thing. He, he goes into the tent of meeting. This is reading through the rest of the, the, rest of the chapter here. He goes into the tent of meeting, and he, and he, and he, and he pleads uh, face-to-face with God. He says, he says God, if, if you don't go before us, if we can't have presence with you, then, then, then what are we going to do? We, can't, we don't have anything. And he pleads, and, 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 and God... I don't know if he changes his mind, but he definitely changes and affirms what he says uh, in it. Moses shows us that, that someone needs to go before us to plead on our behalf. Jesus prays for that. Uh, he does that in his high priestly prayer in John 17. But here what we've read in Ephesians 2 is that he did that on the cross. He is the one who is better than Moses, who is better than any prayer, who is better than any preacher. He went and actually took care of it. The author of history who wants to dwell with us entered the story so that we could dwell with him. How remarkable is that? What a beautiful story. This is a story of all the Bible. Now from Genesis to Revelation, we read that this is the story. God created in his sanctuary garden to uh, uh, some people that he could be with and dwell with them. And what does he say at the end of the day? This is very good. This is the way that this should be. I should be dwelling with people. Something happens. They, they, they sin. They turn away. And his presence, his, his presence, his holy presence in the garden demands that their sin be gone because he loves them. Not because he's ashamed of them. Because he, he loves them. He says, go away. You can't dwell with me. You can't dwell here in my presence anymore. And we get on a long journey that goes time and time again. If people drawing close, and going away, drawing close and going away. And then Jesus comes, enters the story. Paul reflects on how this works. And I want to I I push us towards where this ends then. In Revelation, we find that through Christ, those who believe will once again return to that sanctuary with God. They will dwell with him. This is Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verses 1 through, uh, through 4. This is how it ends. This is real history that we have yet to see, and it inspires us to a glorious hope in the God who desires to dwell with us in his presence. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice of the throne saying, hear this, anyone who wants to know, is there hope in this life and the next? Here's what God says from the throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There won't be pain. There won't be loneliness. There won't be questioning our identity. There won't be wondering what the purpose is. We will dwell with God and he will say, your identity is that you are a beloved, forgiven child of mine. Come home. Let's live together as it was intended to be. How beautiful is that? We can delight in God's presence because it is holy and it is without sin. We can delight in God's presence because the idea of God's presence means he wants relationship And we can delight in God's presence because Christ makes a way for that. We go back to Exodus 33. If we read, uh, the last part I'll read from this is that after Moses and God hash it out, it's a wonderful thing. It's rich. We don't have time to go into the the depth of what Moses and, 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 and God are saying there. At the end of this, God says to Moses, I've got this on the screen here, uh, Exodus 33, 14. God says to Moses, he says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And that's so wonderful. Moses is pleading for his presence and God says, yes, I'll give you that. And I also am just going to add something on. You'll have rest. Moses knows that there's rest in God's presence. Now, why do we have a breakdown in social capital? Because we don't know what our identity is. We, we don't know uh, what our purpose is. Now, how do we fill that? Oftentimes, we, we, we're restless in our hearts because we, we, we have a misplaced rest. We want our rest to be in our name. We want our rest to be in our community. We want our rest to be in how awesome our church is. We want our rest to be in, in how awesome our kids are. But we find that Christ makes a way for peace. That God in his presence gives us rest. St. Augustine says that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. This is what Moses is pleading well before St. Augustine was born. We want to have rest. We don't want to go into this new place. We don't want to go into this new world, into our work week, into whatever it is. We don't want to go there with restlessness. We want to know who we are and why we're going. And God says, you are forgiven children of God. Now go and be with me. The thing I love about the idea of rest that we mistake sometimes is that we think, when we think of rest, we think of leisure. And when we think of leisure, we kind of have weird assumptions of that. I think oftentimes we think that we will rest today when we watch our pro football team. 
I feel that. I'm saying that just hypocritically. Like, I'll go watch. I don't even really care so much about a pro football team. But I turn on football in the fall, and it's like, this is the way life was meant to be, right? And we go there. Like, I worked hard. I deserve this. I'm going to root for whoever, and I'm going to scream at Cam Newton because it's what we do, right? Uh, the, the idea of rest is not inactivity. The idea of rest is, is, is a peace within our hearts. That's why we see Christ breaks down the wall of hostility, giving us a name, drawing us close to God into his presence. And that's why, that's why God says, you will go with me. Now, what is he going to do from here? From here on in Exodus, he's going to send the people out so that they can have rest. But he's going to go have them like knock over the, the walls of Jericho. He's going to have them go kill a bunch of people. He's going to have them go into the land of giants. And it's going to be terrifying. They're going to be a very busy people like you and I. But they will have rest because they know where their identity is. They know that they are a beloved, forgiven child of God. And that is beautiful. And they know that he sends them out to proclaim, to proclaim that in this world. So I go through this whole idea of, of, of looking at, at, a, at God and his, and his glorious works, remembering them and what he does in the past. And, and, and I take us all the way to Revelation and anticipating our hope of what he will do in the future. Because I, I believe when we hang the past and, and, and the future in balance, then we can somehow get to a point of where we know what do we do today. So here are a couple ideas of maybe where we go with this idea of God's presence and how he speaks it into our lives today. So uh, as we enjoy God's presence, we can see that as we relate to God personally, just at an individual level. uh, And by the way, uh, the individual spirituality is a really new thing in Christianity. Like this is like something we invented like a couple hundred years ago. A lot of, most people, most Christians uh, for the last 2,000 years have always thought of the group of people. This idea of of individual spirituality is new. But since we think that way, we'll go that way a little bit. As we relate to God personally, God's presence requires a response. You see, God's presence is a real thing. The Israelites know this. Moses knows this, that, that he will be present. It's just where will he be present? So he says, I'm here. I'm going to go with Christ. Christ says, I am here. I am the Savior. I am also the judge. So on an individual level, if we go that way, we have to decide how will the judge enact that on us. He came down and clarified this idea that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he divides us to two options. Either you know me, Matthew, uh, what is this, Matthew 7, either you know me as God and Savior, the forgiver of your sins, and you will be ushered into the presence of God when I come to judge, or you don't know me as Savior, and you will be sent off to death, eternal separation from God. That's who Jesus is. And he says, I am here, and that is offensive if you are stiff-necked. This is the direction that you're going to go one or the other, righteous or wicked. You're going, to be, uh, you're going to be a mighty oak or chaff. You're going to be there are a number of things that he talks about. And, and as we go, we have to recognize that Jesus isn't something that Christians just speak of and as a story. He's a real person that will come and his presence will be there. And on that day, his presence will matter more than anything you have ever known. And we can anticipate that in the way we celebrate in the way we are obedient, in the way we encourage and and rebuke each other. We do that with Christ at the forefront of our minds. 
In Mark 8, Jesus asked the question that always needs to be asked. Who do you say I am? You might say I'm Jesus on Sunday morning, but as you're slandering your neighbor or your spouse or whatever, who do you say I am? It plays out into more than just the corporate act of worship together on Sunday morning. As we relate to one another, though, God's presence uh, reminds us that he is made manifest in the body of believers. Right here, there is an aspect that we have in Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 4, that, that there is a body of believers that has Christ as the head. The point of this is not to exist as an awesome body of believers. I mean, that'd be great. Let's do that. I don't want to say don't go that way, but it's for the purpose of building one another up in truth and love. Speaking truth and love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, who is Christ. We do this when we affirm and rebuke each other to be on line with Christ. We do this in reconciliation. This is a big one. In reconciliation and forgiveness. We can't not read about God's presence and then also think about his reconciliation. That's what Jesus is doing, right? He's reconciling us to God, breaking down the wall of hostility so we can be with him. So we now, reflecting that, are to go and reconcile with others. Okay, this is what this means. You're hearing it. I'm just going to say it. You need to get over your stiff-neckedness and apologize, confess to one another. This is for for, for someone like me. uh, This is so awkward. This goes against my pride. When I have to go and say, there's, some, there, 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 there's someone here uh, today. I just caught them and it was just woefully done. I have to apologize. I haven't apologized rightly yet to them. I caught them on the way in the door. There's someone who has been asking me to help them and talk with them. And in my stiff-neckedness, I thought, oh, I'm going to be God. I'm going I'm to set my priorities this way. God has called me to go and meet with this person and I'm resisting that. So I'm telling you now, because now I'm like crazy accountable to all of you, that within the next half hour, I have to talk to whoever you are. You know who you are. I have to go and say, I'm sorry, I did this. This was my pride. No excuses. That's what it takes. And it's really uncomfortable. I'm super uncomfortable right now. That's what it takes. But on the, on the flip side of that, you reciprocate this. You have to forgive. Like you have to move that direction. You have to make a way of forgiveness. If you're someone who lives by like shame and responsibility, like it's always my fault, it's always my fault, you get the, you get the, you get the, the ask for forgiveness side. But if you're someone who, who, who lives that way or, or, or whatever, uh, or, or is, is, is prideful or stiff-necked, it's not so easy to say, I forgive you. In my family, we've started this thing that's super tough, is when someone asks for forgiveness, we say you have to name what you are being forgiven for. Please forgive me for this. And when you forgive someone, you have to say, I forgive you for this. I'm sorry that you feel this way is not <laughs> that. I'm sorry I did this. And then you say, I forgive you for doing this. And the forgiveness sometimes is even harder when we have to do that because we realize that God says, I forgive you for this. And we start to understand a little bit more. And the, and, and, and the first time is just like Mount Everest to get over. And then you find out that confession and forgiveness starts to flow a little more freely once you break through that first time. I'd encourage you to go that way. We can enjoy God's presence as we confess and forgive to one another. We can enjoy God's presence as we affirm and rebuke one another. Okay, and as we relate to the world, so as we relate to ourselves, who is Jesus when he is judge? As we relate to one another, we build up the body of believers. As we relate to the world, God's presence gives confidence to teach the world about Jesus. We don't have to go and say, 
Well, here's the gospel according to Parkview. Here's the gospel according to the class I took. Here's the gospel according to American Christianity in 2018. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, Go make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey all that I have told you. And then he gives us this confidence booster. He says, All authority has been given to me, and behold, which means listen up, behold, I will be with you always till the end of the age. We can go confidently saying the truth of God because he has the authority and he will be with us to the end of the age. Oh, that's amazing. If you've ever thought, I don't have enough courage, I don't know what I'm going to say, he has the authority. He's sending you out to do the work. You just have to go do it. We can enjoy God's presence because God is holy, because God is relational, and because God is a sending God who wants all to be in his presence. In a time where we have loneliness and we wonder about our loneliness, God's presence is what we need to rightly align our rest. We will be restless if we try and find a name for ourselves. We will be restless if we try and find a community or create something other than God, some golden calf, some, some, some pristine image, some purpose in life beyond what God gives us. He gives us plenty to do. He gives us the work of wandering with him in the wilderness and trusting in him and proclaiming his glory every day. Man, what a great job we have. Not easily measurable, but wonderfully fulfilled. So brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to enjoy God's presence as you live in the identity and purpose of Christ. Who I am is because of Christ. What I do is because of Christ. Let's pray.